0: If you're wondering if this is going to be a Christmas or Advent sermon or not, um, I assure you that it will be. And if you weren't here last week, I'm going to have to do a little bit of work or help in allowing you to see the connection between the themes of Advent and uh, this particular section in Paul's letter to the Roman church. but. We'll get to that in just a moment. I want to remind us because it's an important part of our Advent observation here as the people of God that we are taking up an offering as a church to help support some needs at an orphanage in Kenya that we have ministered to in the past, both in physically being there. A few of us have been there before and then also, um, we've contributed in the past to some of the financial and physical needs of this orphanage. It's called Open Hand Children's Home. Right now, there are 23 children that live in this home. Some of them will be adopted out into families, but by and large, those children will grow and live in this home and be cared for like a big family, and then hopefully. Have the opportunities to excel and thrive in their culture. They're in Kenya, known only as image bearers. We want all people to have the hope of success and so forth. But more importantly, they will be light in the midst of their country that desperately needs the hope of Christ. So, uh, for around $1,200, we can pay some staff salaries. We can provide a nice but a feasible Christmas for these children and also take care of some other physical needs like bedding and blankets and, and things like that. So I encourage you to give. If you have not already, we'll collect funds both this week and next. There's a box in the back. If you are new around here and wonder why we don't pass an offering plate, we like our giving to be a private act of worship. A lot of you give online, which is a way that we give here, but some of you like to do it traditionally. But there's a little small nondescript box in the back where you can give offerings in the support of our church and the expansion of the gospel, but also for gifts like this. And if you just want to stick it in an envelope or put it in the memo line, just write Kenya. We'll make sure to designate that for the uh, children's home there in Kenya, and I invite you to give toward that. We will meet on Christmas Eve and on New Year's Eve. Uh, Christmas Eve specifically, we'll just have our morning worship service. Uh, The district requires that one of the custodians be here whenever we meet, so we don't want to make them come out twice on a holiday, but we will meet in the morning, and it'll be a special day. All the children who are typically in kids' church will join us, and we'll have a special service that will have them in mind, so I encourage you to be here for that, and we will worship together. So last week, we began working through Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 21. I keep track over the years of the Advent sermons that I preach and partially in an effort to not go over texts that we have covered before, but that's inevitable. You know, if you preach long enough, especially through holiday seasons, you're going to cover some of the same texts. So partially in an effort to go to new ground, but more importantly because I want us as a church family. To think biblically and theologically all of the time. For that reason, primarily, we have come now to Romans chapter 5 for our observance of the Christmas or Advent season. For those of you who hear that term all the time and perhaps are a little fuzzy on what it means, Advent, Advent means coming. And when we celebrate Christmas once a year, we celebrate the first coming of Jesus. Now, for you real theological nerds, there is a second one. There's a second Advent coming. Jesus will one day return and finish what he started. He will consummate the hope that we have in him, the hope of the gospel. But in the first coming of Jesus, we hope for it brought us the hope of life. So we will work today further through this section, for it reveals to us the crux or the essence of the first coming of Jesus. And so by working through this text, which may not at first glance seem like an Advent text, we get to the heart of why he came. So that the goal may be accomplished that we as a church family, as the people of God who live in these various surrounding communities can lend credence to what it is that we Christians celebrate during this season. In other words, as the people of God, why is Advent so important to us? Do we just fall in line with the rest of the culture that seems to have sort of this generic joy and happiness that we try to manufacture and drum up through the giving of gifts and the hanging of decorations, or is there something more fundamental than that? And so at its very core, what was the first advent of Jesus about? And that is what Paul reveals to us here in Romans chapter 5, so I will pick up the verses we covered last week and then read down through verse 17 for verses 15 through 17 are our text for this week, and I want us with open hearts and hopeful eyes to see the crux, the central fundamental theme of the advent of Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. If because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. May God bless us and transform us by the reading of his word. Last week in verses 12 through 14, we encountered a couple of questions. First, Why are people, including us, the way we are? Paul's answer in verses 12 through 13 is because of universal death and universal sin. Why is the world messed up? Why is it broken? Or just to say it as fundamentally as we can, why is the world full of sadness? Because of Adam's sin. Through Adam's sin, the whole world died, and the whole world was corrupted with a nature which would lead to even more sin. But there's hope in this text, which is what verse 14 reveals. So, so another question, will it always be this way? No, God had a plan to bring hope and restoration And herein lies the link between Paul's theological treatise, his explanation of the gospel, and Advent. Here it is. End of verse 14. Adam, the first man, made incarnate, a real man. His sinning was not like the transgression of Adam. The people who lived between Adam and Moses, their sinning was not like the transgression of Adam. And then notice this little phrase easy to skip over who was a type of the one who was to come so my friends this is an advent text Paul reveals here in Romans chapter 5 verse 14 that there was an anticipation that one would come now generally speaking humanity had this expectation It was incredibly fuzzy. Perhaps it was just nagging and intuitive. A nagging, intuitive hope that it could be right once again. That every ensuing generation was a gigantic disappointment. That humanity, generation after generation, was a massive failure. So there was a general nagging hope in the hearts of all of humanity, those who came after Adam and Eve, that perhaps one day it might be better, for the world by and large was massively disappointing. But for the Jewish people, there was something more specific, and we saw this last week. As soon as Adam and Eve sinned, God came to them, Speaking words of condemnation, both to them and to his enemy, the serpent. But in these words of condemnation, they were shot through with hope. That one day a seed of the woman would come. There would be an advent of a real person. A son who would become a man. And though he would be wounded by the enemy of God, by the serpent... Through the wounding, he would unseat the serpent, undo him, and one day ultimately destroy him. Taking away the shadow of death and the horror of sin and bring about hope. So when God's encounter with Adam and Eve in the garden after the fall of humanity... Christmas was promised. Advent was hinted at. And up until the incarnation of Jesus, when God came down to be with us, Emmanuel, there was a hope, whether general in humanity or specific for God's covenant people, that there would be a man who would come and set it right and take away the sadness and bring joy and light into the darkness. Which means that you should put Christmas lights on your tree. And by the way, it should be a real tree for those of you who buy those fake plastic things from other countries. Shame on you. You should buy a real tree and put it in your house and put real lights on it. And you should put lots of real lights on your house. It's okay to do that as a Christian. Now, if you have a conviction against that, please forgive me and still listen to the rest of the sermon. But for those of us who do these things, there's something inside of us that resonates with that. When when we see our neighbors doing this with their giant inflatable Snoopies and snowman and reindeer and various colored lights, one of the things my family loves to do during Advent season is just drive around neighborhoods and look at lights. We found the best ones this year. We can point those out to you if you'd like. But there's something about that that, that's more than just cultural celebration. Think about it. When a person hangs Christmas lights on their house, you can't see them during the day. They don't turn them on, for that is a waste of money. They turn them on at night. And they stand in stark contrast against the inky black night coming back from some friend's house last night and drove into our neighborhood and there's an inch or so of snow on the ground and against the night sky and against the whiteness of the light, the lights shine brightly. It's beautiful. But there's a message there. There's a reason why people do it. They don't think through the metaphor. My neighbor who never darkens the doorstep of a church... He's not thinking about the metaphor of light and darkness. But we do. Even in these cultural celebrations, there's the echoes of the divine. The echoes of the original story. That God created humanity to live in his light. But that because of sin, darkness, metaphorically pervaded And yet along the way through the history of redemption, there were beacons of light. The prophets speaking words to the people. The promise of redemption, of a coming. When one day the sad things would become untrue, the darkness would be peeled away and the light would shine. And that's what happened when Jesus was born. A very literal light lit the sky and led the magi to the Christ child. The angels shone in splendor of light, and the humble men came to the one who would be the shepherd of our souls. He would be the light of the world, he tells us in John's gospel. And he would be lifted up so that all who would see him might receive life if they would receive him by faith. He was resurrected from the dead, breaking the darkness of the day of crucifixion. He ascended into heaven, and he dwells once again in unapproachable light, and one day will return and be the light of the world. For there will be no more need for sun, for the Lamb will be among us, and he will be its lamp. In the second advent of Jesus, in the second coming of Jesus, we will find light pervading all. Will it always be the way it is today? No. God had a plan to bring hope and restoration. So there's a reason why we as the people of God who believe in the fundamental aspect of the coming of Jesus, hope in this season. There's a reason why our neighbors, though they cannot explain it, they don't think through the metaphors like we do, there's a reason why there's a nagging question in their hearts Why am I so messed up? Why is my wife? Why are my kids? Why are my parents? Why is the world? And they push back against that. They do it with presents. They do it with decorations. They do it with parties. They do it with food. But all those things will come up lacking. But brothers and sisters, we have good news. We know the answers to the metaphors. We have the key to the story the story of all of humanity, for we know it, and we've been made part of it. And that is why in this Advent season, we explore it once again. So, in our verses for today, first of all, we have this fundamental distinction that is brought out by Paul. And that fundamental distinction is between Adam and Jesus. Adam and Jesus, our verses from last week established this, acted as representatives of humanity. And Paul will further explain in our verses for today, verses 15 through 17, how they did that and the result of how they represented humanity. Adam and Jesus acted as representatives of humanity. First of all, first distinction, Adam's sin resulted in death. And we can describe death or define it as separation and condemnation. Separation from God and condemnation, guilty verdict. So Adam's sin resulted in death for all. But Jesus' gracious gift brings life. How do we define life? Reconciliation, opposite of separation, bringing us back to God. That's what the first 11 verses of Romans 5 are about. So, whereas Adam's sin brought separation, Jesus' gracious gift, by contrast, brings reconciliation. And whereas Adam's sin brought condemnation, Jesus' sins, Jesus' grace conversely brought justification to all who trust in him. So, at the end of our section from last week, verse 14, we find that Adam was a type of the one who was to come who was the one to come, Jesus, and he came, as we celebrate in this season, in his first advent. He was made a real man, fully God, fully man. Adam represented the race and failed massively. And his sin, his decision, resulted in our humanity's separation and condemnation. But the one who was to come was different than Adam, For his gracious gift brings something surprising, reconciliation and justification for all who will trust him. Some of you are perhaps familiar with ancient Greek mythology. It often goes along with being a theological nerd, that you're sort of a historical and literary nerd. So for those of you who know this story well, you can sort of check out for just a moment. But for the rest of us, we have... A general awareness, and let me fill you in on a couple of details. One of the really interesting stories of Greek mythology is the story of Pandora. Now, I'm not speaking about the music service that's online. Um, I'm speaking of the ancient Greek woman. It is said that she was the first woman that populated the earth. She has been likened to Eve. It makes sense to some degree that even though the Greeks didn't have the Bible, that they had these myths that helped explain their story, that helped them understand their own narrative. Pandora was given not a box, but a jar, and that jar contained numberless evil. Pandora had one thing that she was not supposed to do. Again, sort of like Eve. Eve had one law she was to keep. Pandora was not to take the lid off the jar was one temptation, and all she had to do was just not take the lid off. Well, if you know anything about the story, she did just that. She took the lid off the jar, and all kinds of evil entered the world. Lust, and greed, and selfishness, and deceit, and war, and all of its consequences. But what you might not know about the story is one thing remained in the jar at the very bottom, comes from the Greek word elpis, which is the word that is most usually translated into English, hope. Elpis, or hope, remained in the jar. And the idea was that despite the fact that evil invaded the world, permeated it to all of its four corners, there yet remained hope that it could be undone. So even in this pagan myth, which of course is not true, we find echoes of the one true story, that when Adam and Eve sinned, sin and darkness pervaded every corner of the earth and every nook and cranny of our hearts, and yet there remains hope that it might come untrue, that it might be undone, and that is what the... First advent of Jesus accomplished. What happened when Adam sinned? He and Eve were immediately separated from God, hid from Him. We could say from them and their offspring, immediately went from loving God to hating Him. They wanted to establish their own kingdom, their own rule over this planet separated from god independent from god god had warned them that if they ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that they would immediately die and in a sense they did their death was initiated they were separated from him for the first time in their existence how however long it had been they they for the first time felt fear they for the first time felt hatred they for the first time deceived and hid But that wasn't going to be the end of it, for eventually they would organically die. Their bodies would die, and they would stand before the judgment seat, and they would be condemned for their sin. But we know from the story that God didn't leave it that way. God came to them speaking words of life that one would come and undo the brokenness. And he sent them away from the garden in hope clothed now in the skins of an animal that he had provided, prophetically looking forward to the Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world, that there still could be life, that there still could be hope. And that is why Jesus came. Jesus came to undo what Adam did, to turn separation into reconciliation. We see this in chapter 5, verse 1. Let's look there together, please. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. In verse 10, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. More than that, verse 11, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Due in no small part to Joanna Gaines and to Pinterest, I think they're in league together. Lots of you ladies now have new signs which are made to look old, vintagey. And on these signs, in this season, you have words like rejoice stenciled on them, or peace. These are Advent terms. But do you see how in Romans chapter 5, though it's not a traditional Advent section, that these themes show up and help us explain why we have these nagging notions that there can be reconciliation in a world marked by separation? That there can be hope and peace in a world marked by sadness and brokenness? Adam's sin brought all the sad things into this world. But Jesus' gracious gift brings reconciliation and justification. You see in verse 15, Paul says, The free gift is not like the trespass, Adam's trespass, Adam's breaking of God's law. What was Adam's trespass like? Well, that's the second phrase in verse 15. For if many died through one man's trespass, and by many he means all, we saw that last week in verse 12, it spread to all men. So if many, if all died through one man's trespass, through Adam's breaking of God's law, much more, here's the contrast, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. So Jesus was the gift to humanity, and Jesus gave gifts to humanity. Again, this is the reason why we give at Christmas. It's it's part of our story, part of being this image bearer, the echoes of the divine story. Read on in verse 16, The free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin, for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. That's a legal judgment. Because of sin, we deserve eternal separation from God and punishment but notice the contrast at the end of verse 16. The free gift from Jesus, following many trespasses, brought justification. Adam's sin brought condemnation to humanity and more and more sin. We were imprisoned in sin. Standing before God, our condemnation would be just. We deserve it. But Jesus' gracious gift brings the opposite. And Paul's point in verses 15 through 16 is how much better our second representative was than the first one. Ever since the fall of humanity, we have lived under the shadow of death. Hoping, wondering if the darkness could be pushed back, if sin could be conquered, if the broken things could be made whole again? And in Jesus, the answer is yes. Jesus is better than Adam. For it is easier to put things wrong than to put them right. It was easier for Adam and Eve to take one bite of the fruit of that tree which represented independence from God than to fix the problems that came after. It was easier to take the lid off of Pandora's jar than it was to get the hope out of the bottom and put all the bad things back in. Adam stood as a representative of the race, and he failed. And all the sad things that we have ever experienced are a result of that. The sins of others and our own. Advent is also a season where all that is brought back to us. For we often have to hang out with the people that have disappointed us the most. Parents who hurt us, literally or metaphorically. Brothers and sisters from which we are estranged and never talk to them. Friends that we have lost and don't see anymore. Not just the sins of others, our own sins. For this is a period of reflection. We are nearing the end of the calendar year and are about to turn the page on a new one. Which I assume will go even faster than the one that we just came out of. It's fascinating How quickly our lives are fleeting by. But it's a period of reflection. Did 2017 go as we would have wanted? Were we who we wanted to be? Did we act and behave? Did we believe? Did we love in such a way that was in keeping with our identity as the people of God? For most of us, it's kind of a mixed bag, right? We didn't do all the things we wanted to do. We weren't all that we wanted to be and yet we hope in Christ for we know that he is continuing to transform us and one day we will not be the way that we are today. Advent is a reminder that the world is full of sadness. And as the people of God, we have hope. This beaming, gleaming, inextinguishable light that that pushes back against the darkness, that interprets the story, that answers the nagging questions of people's hearts even if they are far away from Christ. We have hope, brothers and sisters. If we have trusted Jesus, we who were formerly the enemies of God, we have been reconciled to our Creator. If we have placed our faith in Jesus, we have hope that we will not be condemned in the end, that the legal charge of condemnation that we deserve as sons and daughters of Adam might be reversed, surprisingly, and instead the legal declaration will be justification. Why? Not because we have achieved it. Not because we have earned it. Not because we have become righteous finally and self-actualized or become better humans. No. We have no righteousness of our own. Justification is a gift. It's a declaration by God that we who were formerly unjust are now just The sentence of condemnation has been taken away and the Father has received the merits of the Son and has applied them to us. We are no longer under condemnation. Who is this for? This is hinted at in verse 17. Those who receive the abundance of grace. How do we do so? That's what Romans chapters 3 and 4 are about. We receive it by faith. And it's always been this way for the case study of Romans chapter 4 is Abraham, the father of the covenant people. By what means has justification been granted to the people of God? How has the sentence of condemnation been taken away and turned into a sentence of justification? How? On the basis of faith and faith alone. We cannot earn it. We cannot merit it. We are evil. As sons and daughters of Adam, born into this world, condemned, and then acting upon that with further, further sin. We cannot achieve justification, but we desperately need it. Jesus has achieved it and will offer it freely to all who will receive him by faith. Adam and Jesus acted as representatives of humanity. Adam's sin resulted in death, separation and condemnation for all. But Jesus' gracious gift brings life, reconciliation, and justification to all who trust him. Turn with me, please, to Isaiah chapter 11. Matt read these verses to us earlier, but they bear looking at again in light of what we are talking about from Romans chapter 5. The prophet says, one of the beacons of light in a great history of darkness, the prophet says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. Been here long enough. We've talked about this metaphor before, but it is as though the prophet paints a word picture for his audience, for the people of Israel, and likens Israel to a once mighty oak, flourishing, under which its people might experience shade and life. But Because of their transgressions, the tree had been cut down. And it was a scene of great sorrow. For what had once been great and good, and the promise of life had now been severed and broken, it was a scene of death. And yet the prophet says, look closely, For out of the seemingly dead, lifeless stump, there is a shoot of green. The hope that life may return to God's covenant people. And that is who Jesus would be. Bringing life out of death, hope out of hopelessness. He would come and bring life to his people. And then, from verse 6 onward, what would the world be like? Wolves will hang out with lambs. Leopards will play with goats. Calves and lions will play together. Children shall be able to control them. Eventually, even little babies can play by the holes of poisonous serpents. Interesting, perhaps, little homage back to the garden, Genesis 3. And no one will mourn anymore. There will be no more pain, sickness, or disease. Life will come back into this dead earth. And at the end of verse 10, when it's all said and done, his resting place will be glorious and we'll be with him to share in that glory. That will come fully in Jesus' second advent, but it has been initiated. A down payment has been made in the first advent of Jesus. In 1 Corinthians 15.45, we referenced this verse last week, but perhaps it will make a little bit more sense this week. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. As we know from Romans chapter 5, that didn't turn out too well for all of his offspring. But another would come, the last Adam, he became a life-giving spirit. Turn with me, please, to Galatians chapter 4. Galatians chapter 4, verses 1 through 7. In the midst of this really important epistle, Paul's letter to distinguish between law and gospel, an important advent summary, a summary of Jesus' first coming is given. The apostle says in verse 1, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father, Look in verse 3, in the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. What was the result of Adam's sin? Slavery and sadness. What is the result of Jesus coming for all those who receive him by faith? Life. Adoption. Sonship. Notice the contrast. We were formerly the enemies of God, Romans 5, 1-11. Now we're the opposite. We're dear sons and daughters. And whereas before we hid from God and hated God and we're condemned by God, now we cry out, Abba, Father, dear Father. And that is why Paul draws such a sharp contrast in Romans chapter 5, verses 15-17. through 17. The free gift of Jesus is not like the trespass of the first Adam. The first trespass of Adam let everything out of the jar. And the wonder of the grace of the first advent of Jesus This one who brought us the gift of life is that it could be put back in and hope could pervade. It's better. It's surprising. It's shocking. He pours his love out on us who deserve the opposite. So, Adam's sin resulted in death, but Jesus' gracious gift results in life. And then in verse 17, another contrast is brought out. Adam's sin brought about the fear of death, the fear of death. But Jesus brought about the hope of life. Paul says in Romans 5:17 if because of one man's trespass death reigned through that one man. And that is the shadow under which the world has lived ever since the garden, the reign of death. It pervades, it permeates, it brings fear. But notice the contrast. Much more will those who receive by faith the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. This means that we can have hope. So I told you at the beginning that the reason that we've chosen this section for our Advent observance in 2017 is because it helps us think theologically about Advent. It's, it's the crux of the story. Why did Jesus come? Why was he made incarnate? Why was Emmanuel sent to be with us? To take away the fear of death and bring about the hope of life, both for now and for eternity. This means that all who receive Jesus by faith need not fear death. Now, now, and for eternity. Adam and Eve were meant to reign in life. Genesis 1 through 3, we won't take time to turn here again, but I do want to tease out this little strand that we have not yet hit on. Toward the end of Genesis chapter 1, once God creates humanity, He, he sends them out into the world to reign over it, to further populate it and subdue it. There's hints of this also in Genesis chapter 2 when the animals are paraded before Adam and he's told to name them. He's to rule over the garden and and tend it. But after the sin of Genesis chapter 3, they are sent out of the garden. They will no longer be able to reign over the earth as they were intended to do. Eden was a place where they could commune with God and live under his lordship and then be lords of the earth. Because of sin, that was all marred and messed up. But what happened when the second Adam came? He gave us the hope that we could reign once again. That we could hope for life. And, and one day, he will come back. The bookends of the Bible, Genesis and Revelation, picture a earth that is perfect. But the, the end of the story, the back end, the, the second bookend, It's even better than the beginning. For Jesus will physically be with his people. And there will be no more possibility of sin. The tree of life will be back. Will eat from its fruit. Its leaves will heal the nations. No more darkness. No more sadness. It will be daytime all the time. The nations will come into the holy city and they will worship in perfect harmony the God who made them and who rescued them. The end will be better than the beginning. So we need not fear life now, and we can hope that the life that is to come, we will participate in it and enjoy it. So I told you that I want you to think theologically about Advent. I want you to be able to explain it not just to your family, fellow followers of Jesus, but to the world around you. In Romans chapter 5, verses 15 through 17, it does just that for us. It explains why Jesus came. Jesus came to undo separation, and to replace it with reconciliation. Jesus came to take away our condemnation and to offer us justification. And Jesus came to take away the fear of death and to instead replace it with the How do we respond to all this? Three things. First, we have no righteousness of our own. Jesus is our only hope to escape condemnation. Trust Him. This means that it's not just possible, but likely that someone sitting here today, adult or younger person, that you know things about Jesus. You even believe things about Jesus, but you have not yet staked your claim on him. You have not yet banked on him. You have not yet rested in him. You have not yet trusted him. It is not enough just to believe the facts about Jesus, to be intrigued by the story. You've got to fall on him. You've got to trust him. It's a scary thought that one day we will stand before the creator of the universe. We will not be able to plead our own righteousness. We don't have any. But there is one who is perfectly righteous and his merits can be granted to us and credited to us. And he will stand for us. So trust him, my brothers and sisters, if you have not yet done so. Today could be the day of salvation for you. With the heart, one believes, and with the mouth, one confesses. So today may be the day for your heart to trust and for your mouth to confess that Jesus is Lord and exclusive Savior. If we can help you with that in any way, please talk to us afterward. And I will say by implication that those of us who have trusted Jesus, this must be our plea with our neighbors and our, and our parents those we love, and those who have disappointed us. Our our plea with people is not to be better. Our plea with people is to trust Jesus. But what about those of us who have trusted Jesus? Two things. First, we need not posture, deflect, or hide our sin. Our justification enables us to lead transparent, repentant lives. We're good at these three things. We like to put our best foot forward. Whenever our sin is exposed, we like to deflect it. Often we just like to hide because we don't like to be exposed. We, we stay away from people or we pretend that everything's okay, this posturing and hiding. My friends, if it's true that we have no righteousness of our own, that justification has been declared not upon our merits, but because of the merits of Jesus. We don't have to posture. We don't have to deflect. We don't have to hide. Posturing and deflecting and hiding, this is what ruins marriages. It's what separates children from their parents. It's what ruins friendships. It's what hurts churches. May this not be named among us. May we be people who recognize our tendency toward posturing and deflecting and hiding. And may we instead, resting in the righteousness of, the Jesus, of Jesus, the better Adam, the one who leads us to life, may we instead lead lives of transparency and repentance. So if your brother or sister has something to say to you because they're concerned about you, you don't have to run away. Young people who are listening to me now, as your parents are helping you see your errors and, and the mercy of Jesus, by contrast, don't run away. Don't fight them. They, your parents, struggle with these sins. They struggle at work. They struggle with your other parent, your parent's spouse. They struggled when they were young, too. Your parents are trying to help you see their own tendencies and yours and help you to grow up to be the kind of men and women who trust in Jesus deeply. So may our families and may this family, this corporate entity, our church, may we not be marked by posturing and deflecting and hiding. May we instead be the kind of people who live transparently, repentantly, and then thirdly, For the people of God, we may fight fear and consuming sorrow with the knowledge that our lives now and for forever are in the hands of our powerful and gracious King. Jesus came down as a weak incarnate baby. But he had created all. And now through his powerful death and resurrection, he reigns in eternal righteousness Sovereignty rests in his hands. And one day in his second coming, he will bring all the sad things and make them untrue. He'll bring light into the darkness. We can hope both now and for forever. Which means that though fear and anxiety and sorrow and depression and darkness seems to pervade this world, there is a better word that has been spoken. And that word is the promise of life. Our anxiety and fear and sorrow and depression, are they part of the human condition? Yes. But Jesus is pushing back against that, and one day it'll all come untrue. So I say to you, hope and believe and hang on and help each other do that. For for sometimes when we are racked, with fears in our minds and sorrow in our hearts, and we can't seem to find our way out of the darkness, our brothers and sisters have to come alongside and say, look to Jesus. He gives us hope, and one day, hope will pervade the world once again. So in this Advent season, we trust in Jesus. This allows us to lead transparent, repentant lives, and it allows us to hope and the one who is powerful and gracious. He is our king. Fear and consuming sorrow need not penetrate and occupy our hearts and thoughts all the time. Instead, we are to lead lives as those who hope in Jesus, the one who came and the one who will once again come. So may we think theologically about Christmas, but may this be more than just something that's inside of our heads, cognitive. May this be something that penetrates our hearts and our affections and may it change the way that we look at God and the way that we look at each other and the way we look at the world may God change us for his glory for our joy and for the good of this world